Today I welcome Irfan Latif, Principal at DLD College in London. In this episode, I discuss exam reform, BTEC qualifications, mental health and social media. So I want to kind of talk about some some, some hot topics. Uh, The first one is really around mental health, um, because, you know, mental health for me is something that was always going to be, I'm going to call it the silent killer um, of COVID, because it may not be something that we see immediately, but it's going to have pretty, you know, pretty substantial impacts on our children. Um, How do you see mental health in our children because of COVID? Oh, we have to do absolutely everything we can in order to preserve uh, our children's mental health uh, and how we can give them strategies in order to cope with what's going on at the moment. There's been a recent uh, study being undertaken and the uh, Evening Standard showed that up that um, you know, we're going to have a mental health crisis once this COVID, uh, COVID issue has, has, come, has come about. We're doing a lot of things at school uh, with regards our mental health and we've taken a real big stance we, we've, we're not in league tables now uh, and I think many schools are now going to opt out of league tables I, I don't see how league tables can operate in in in, uh, in, in, in today's world uh, because all schools are different and for us for me the most important thing is is are my children happy if my children are happy then those barriers to learning can be removed and if those barriers to learning are removed then they're going to be successful so I think it all starts off from making sure that their well-being and their mental health as well as my staff are preserved yeah. then we'll talk about the academics so when i first started at dld it was looking at how our pastoral systems can look after our uh, students our borders our international borders uh, and and how we can put in systems in place to bring in early intervention if there were any issues how can we go about uh, tackling them and supporting them together with the family um, and the and, and the school and, and the kid itself. So there, there is going to be a huge mental health crisis once this COVID is over and that we need to be prepared. Our staff are all mental health first aid trained. There's about 60 odd staff now who are mental health first aid trained. All our prefects are mental health first aid trained. Uh, a lot of our parents are mental health first aid trained so that they can provide that triage, if you like, uh, so that some of those issues can be dealt with at source. Uh, so we're trying to give all our, uh, our community, our family, those tools uh, in order that they can combat uh, this tsunami uh, that's going to be upon us soon. Yeah, and it's, and it, you know, it's, it's not really just you know, going to become upon us. It's upon us now. And I think we've, we, we, we suffered it from the first. That it's been slowly trickling its way into, you know, everyone's households because it's not just kids, it's the parents too. And for me, you know, is it time to refocus the priorities of education to ensure our children are happy first, happy first, you know, and curriculum checkboxes come second. You talked about exam reform. You talked about the need for them. We don't need that. You know, give, ask any parent is a happy, confident child. Um, but I haven't seen any real changes in in timetabling in any schools to represent this shift to go. Let's look after your happiness. What do we do second? What are your thoughts on trying to refocus education? I think, it, I think this pandemic has now given us the opportunity now to refocus and look at how we can go about reforming education. I think there are two schools out there who are looking to 
I think it's the Thomas's group who are looking to open a new school now, which has no exams at 16. I think we're the only school in Europe now which tests formally at 16. Uh, Germany, France, Spain, Portugal don't don't do that. Uh, they have their sort of end of year, 18 year olds, uh, you know, finish school finishing certificates and things like that. So for me, it is a time now to look at that because for the second year in a row now, the grades are now going to be given the responsibility to our teachers. And they're the best people to be able to tell you how well a child is going to do. They know that child inside out. Not an examiner, not a paper sat at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. It's the, it's the, uh, the teachers. They've been working with them for two, three, four, five years, and they know what makes them tick. And I think now with COVID, with Brexit, with Black Lives Matter, all of those things, uh, the inequality that we have in education, which has been seen by uh, our stances to remote education, where, you know, we've seen a huge difference between the state and in, in, in the independent, which saddens me, which really saddens me, having worked in the state sector for some five years. It's something that needs, uh, you know, a resetting of the playing field and possibly having a, a completely new exam system or uh, uh, getting away from the exam system altogether uh, is probably what we needed. And the UCAS system also needs to, to change, you know, providing predictions and things like that. You know, once the kids have done their end of year, end of school exams, and I think there should be some sort of formal recognition of their time at school, then they can use that to then apply for universities. And that may well be um, a much better way forward. Yeah, I agree. I think exam reform, particularly at GCSEs, is well overdue. Um, so, you know, hopefully this is going to be the catalyst we need to see it change. Because you're right, let's leave it up to the teachers who know the children best to really assess them in an ongoing way. To give them the, their just rewards for the effort they put in throughout the time at school, not just down to that two-hour window on a Thursday in May. Um, your curriculum is slightly different in terms of, you know, you are running BTEC and you spoke out about BTEC not getting the recognition it deserves. What would you like to see changed? I want to see BTEC exams, if they exist, you know, in our new um, Simon and Irfan exam reform system, if they are to remain, uh, to be given the same store as A-level. Um, they're always seen as a poor cousin uh, to A-level. They're always seen as uh, a, an alternative for, for students who can't cope with the demands and pressures of A-level. BTECs are hard. BTECs are really rigorous. Uh, they really do test those students. They, uh, the theoretical parts uh, to the BTEC, uh, the practical parts of the BTEC, uh, are really, really challenging. And I'm just so proud of my students. Uh, you know, just roll up their sleeves and get on with it. Uh, and the results that they get are, you know, testimony to their hard work as well as the efforts put in by by teachers and they get into some of the best universities in the country so um, universities are now looking upon BTEX as a uh, you know a top qualification and I, and I would like to see more and more schools uh, do the same as well but more importantly it, it's it's making sure parents understand you know there, there are so many different pathways that uh, children can take in order to get to the same destination uh, if I want to get to a particular destination on tube stop, there are so many different tube lines I can, I can take. And I think from, for, for this particular uh, vocational courses, uh, if a student wants to end up doing um, 
you know, engineering or something like that, they can still do so uh, by going through a vocational pathway. Yeah, it, it does need to come up to speed, um, certainly the way people view this, because you've just got to look at what employers want and actually what the world wants. And the, and, and the employers want um, skills-based, vocation-led, you know, um, education, because that, that way they are fine-tuning and getting these kids um, to really hone their skills and be something that they can apply to the future of work. So, yeah, I mean, BTEC, I know I was, I was surprised as you, um, but it just goes to show you that the people making the decisions still have this snobbery when it comes to the traditional way and this, this, this conveyor belt of, of an outdated um, curriculum model that is not fit for purpose for the world of work and certainly not, I mean, even a conveyor belt into university. You know, universities, I think, are going to be really struggling and they have to make their, their, their offering much, much better now because it was always the conveyor belt from school to get to university. And university was always that leapfrog, that kind of entry point into the world of work. And employers are kind of going, well, actually, I don't really care too much about university. So that, again, is, is a really powerful thing. And I think the world and the employers will drive this and they have to. Um, but again, coming off lead tables, I think it's a great, a great start as well. Um, and pushing the, the skills led critical thinking and everything else that you're doing at school. So um, I'm a champion of the BTEC and um, I hope that you can certainly raise, raise its profile um, and we can drive that one forward. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Um, you run an urban boarding school in London, yeah. um, which is, which is a, a novel idea. It's a great idea. Why aren't there more urban boarding schools? We're lucky we have Archbishop's Park behind us. That's where the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, resides when he's in London, Lambeth Palace. So we use uh, those uh, fields. Uh, but, you know, urban boarding for us was a huge concept that we had to look at and strategize. Uh, we did our remembrance assembly uh, and we finished the remembrance assembly at five past 11. At 10 past 11, we were in the Imperial War Museum, putting everything into context. By 11.45, kids were back in school because we were literally a two minute walk from there. Yeah, I mean, you, you, your, ca your campus is the city. I mean, what, what, a, and what, a, gr what a great city to be in. Exactly, and, and for us to be able to be at a drop of a hat with all the you know, relevant risk assessments all carried out, et cetera, we can be at any particular museum, any particular art gallery within 10, 15 minutes. So we don't cut away too much into academic time. We're not spending too much time planning this, that, and the other. We can actually get down to um, the bones of teaching and learning and making sure that our students get that experiential learning as well as what's happening in the classroom. So yeah, so we may not have the acres and acres of fields uh, but we have acres and acres of opportunity uh, in London. Uh, and that's why I think this urban boarding concept has really taken off. Uh, and I'm humbled by the fact that we won boarding school of the year. And uh, a lot of hard work done by our boarding team, our senior management team, our teachers, our students, our sales teams, uh, who really worked hard in order for us to, uh, you know, win that accolade. And it's, it's great to see that 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 type of boarding uh, which goes against the tradition 
is is working and so again you know how to be more pirate disrupting what we've always thought of was the norm let's disrupt that now and see if that works yeah no i, th I think it's great to see you um as you say being more pirate I, th I think it's really important you have to challenge the norms because again we have to lead by example to show our children that just because it's always been that way it doesn't have to be that way and actually you've created a, co a really compelling um, educational model that I'm sure other other groups other schools will take a look at and go you're absolutely right you know you talk about acres acres and acres of opportunity I mean you have acres and acres of of parkland and everything else to have the the ground so um, yeah I'm, I'm certainly brought in again to an, an urban boarding model I think it's a great it's a great idea and particularly being in London um, one of my favorite cities yeah, I mean, one of the things that came off from that is during the pandemic, our boarders um, were in the uh, were in the boarding house uh, and decided to draw pictures and posters thanking the NHS because they're right opposite St Thomas's, and that just took off, absolutely took off. So if you can see, and I know you can see it here, but you won't see it on the podcast. But the building is 18 floors and it's just full of you know windows and glass and everything. So we covered every piece of that glass with, with pictures. And then the um, Rainbows for Nightingale campaign started and uh, lots and lots of school children were sending in pictures to the NHS. And unfortunately, the NHS couldn't display any of those pictures because of coronavirus, um, you know, yeah. whether the pictures were infected, this, that and the other. So our boarding house staff said, do you know what, send them to us. So we had over 5,000 pieces of artwork from all over the world sent to us. And we were then seen as a beacon of hope during that first pandemic as we provided support to the NHS. And again, that was looking at the way we use our facilities uh, to be more um, welcoming to the community and uh, reaching out to our community. And so that really, really worked. And so I was really pleased again at how uh, innovative our boarding house staff and our boarders were uh, in light of that. And so we've all had to learn to pivot. We've all had to learn to adapt and be flexible in our approach during this virus. And I was just quite amazed at how that worked and how that took off. Yeah, fantastic. Um, what are the biggest challenges facing the independent sector? And if you were in charge, what would you change? <laughs> There's, there's a lot, a uh, lot of challenges for the independent sector. I think affordability uh, is a huge one uh, at the moment, especially now that um, things like uh, the employer contributions to TPS have increased. Um, and so as a result, that's going to have uh, much more, it's going to have, it's going to be difficult on the bottom line. And so affordability and that, and that unfortunately, that increase in TPS is going to be passed on to the parents. You're looking at the parental demographics now and you're looking in London, uh, a lot of our uh, squeezed middle uh, you know, are, are leaving London. We've seen loads leave during the course of the pandemic and moving out to the country. And so that's going to have a, a huge effect. And Brexit, Brexit is going to have a massive effect, you know, recruiting quality teachers. Um, you know, I, I worry about the demise of languages now um, with, regards, with regards to that, the extra uh, checks that need to be done now on on on, uh, on teachers coming from uh, the EU, uh, and of course recruitment as well is going to be tough. Um, recruitment is going to be tough in terms of um, visas and tier four, uh, and whether affordability and and whether uh, London continues to be attractive. Like you, London for me, you know, a favourite city. And if I wanted to go and study in London, or wanted to go and study in New York or Rome or Paris, you know, you you do it. 
uh, but all these barriers are being put in our way to make things difficult. But you know, we will overcome those barriers and we will look at solutions in order to facilitate our recruitment policies, to facilitate um, our, our staff retention and all those sort of things in order to ensure that we do provide a first class education. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the divide happening between really private and state and that divide seems to be getting bigger because of um, the obvious benefits and affordability and access to the latest technology, the best teachers from a private side of things, um, and then the state sector being left adrift because of affordability, um, not enough support at home. What are the independent sector doing to ensure that that gap doesn't become any bigger? Well, the, uh, the ISC has done a lot of work here and uh, Julie Robinson is, is the spearhead here looking at all the various partnerships uh, that uh, state schools uh, have formed with the independent sector. And the independent sector has gone out specifically to, to, sort, to help with those partnerships uh, regarding um, you know, use of laptops, use of um, online learning at the moment. That's what a lot of schools are doing and sharing their resources. Uh, looking at how uh, they can support their teachers with regards to TPD, uh, looking at how we can facilitate uh, Oxbridge lessons and university applications. Uh, and so there's plenty of, uh, plenty of opportunities there for building those, those partnerships. And uh, those partnerships are well documented uh, and the, the independent sector is doing everything that it can in order to, to facilitate that. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of schools now who have also said, look, we want to become uh, vaccination hubs uh, so that we can support our local communities because our schools are closed. Uh, so, you know, so do please use our facilities in order to help the national effort. So, you know, not only looking at partnerships within, within schools, uh, but looking at partnerships within the community as well and how we as independent schools uh, can use our facilities and connections and networks in order to bring about positive change. Yeah, great. Um, I love being a little bit pirate. It sits with my kind of disruptive maverick um, kind of DNA that, that sits in everything that I do. Um, I kind of want to maybe ask your opinion on should schools be doing more with allowing or enabling state school kids to take part in lessons because they're online, whether it's one or whether it's 50 or whether it's 100 the quality of teaching that you get on obviously the independent side um, is, is, is quality that maybe you don't get in the state sector and that will benefit those schools. Is that something that you've thought about or looked into? Yeah, we've, we've looked into that. We've seen how we can go about um, you know, providing that sort of service and that sort of expertise within uh, our context. Um, but again, it's, it's looking at how we do it from a safeguarding point of view and how we ensure uh, everything is, is safe uh, so that we don't end up you know, compromising anything. But it's, it's something that, that is there. It's something that I'm very keen to explore and look into. And, and if we can overcome some of those safeguarding issues, which is paramount at the end of the day, yeah. uh, at least then you've got children learning. And that, and that is key. And I think the government looking at how they can close the gap with extra tutoring lessons and things like that, which will happen online uh, and everything that, you know, the BBC is doing to facilitate homeschooling um, is, you know, is great. But there is still so much more we can do. 
and it's difficult you know you with your four children my with my two children you know you running your business me running my school we've still got children downstairs you know learning uh, and you know we're we're looking after them as well as looking after the staff as well as looking after the school and it is a tough time it is a tough time and you know the first lockdown was you know running the school from my kitchen table that was what was happening uh, but it is it is looking at ways in which we can facilitate bridging the, that gap between the state and the independent sector. You speak out, just to wrap up, you speak out a lot and you're very active on social media, um, LinkedIn, Twitter. Which is your favourite platform? I like LinkedIn. I like LinkedIn. It's a professional community out there and uh, there's lots of uh, opportunities from a learning perspective, from a professional development perspective uh, as well. Um, and um, yeah, I, I enjoy I enjoy um, posting up on LinkedIn, and and you get um, you get professional dialogue. I worry about posting anything too controversial, and in my position, I shouldn't be anywhere, and I should always remain apolitical, as as a head should always be. Uh, on Twitter, um, you know, we, we saw all the work that Marcus Rashford has been doing. Uh, and then for him to come out with that, having been racially abused on um, on Twitter for um, playing below par uh, against Arsenal over the weekend, I thought was just horrific. Uh, and the amount of work that individual is doing uh, in order to help his community, help society at a time where we, where we all need to pull together. Uh, and, to, and then to get comments like that is just disappointing. Um, and so for me, Twitter, yes, I'll put the odd uh, thing up there and uh, maybe read through what's going on. But I, I try not to comment in case there's a backlash. Uh, but no, I, I, I like LinkedIn. That professional dialogue is, uh, is very, very healthy, especially at this time now. And the support that you receive there through LinkedIn is, is great. Fantastic. Um, Irfan, thanks ever so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I'm glad to see you looking really well. I'm glad to see the school is absolutely thriving. And yeah, I hope hopefully we'll get another chance to put something in to, to have a catch up. Yes, definitely. And once all this madness is over, we'd love to have you over, Simon, for a cup of tea at DLD and show you around. And uh, again, thank you to you and to Interactive Schools for giving me this opportunity. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.